On July 2nd, 2021, a couple left their bustling life in New York to spend four months traveling around the U.S. in their recently purchased and refurbished white van. They set out to visit dozens of national parks, fall asleep under the stars, and bond as a newly engaged couple. Gabby Petito, 22, documented their travels via her Instagram and YouTube channel. Her and Brian Laundry, 23, left their newly purchased home, dreaming of all the future memories soon to come. Little did Petito know these would be some of her final months on Earth. On August 12th, Petito shared a photo of herself sitting under the arches in the Utah National Park. The sun shone through her hair as a smile widened from her mouth. While it may have seemed she was living a picturesque lifestyle, things were rocky between her and Laundrie. The Moa police in Utah stopped the two after they almost ran into the side of the road. Currently doing 45 miles an hour. Zone through here is 25. Oh! Subjects just hit the curb. When they pulled them over, Petito was in tears, and the couple seemed to be in great distress. What's your guys' names? Gabby. Brian. Gabby, Brian, okay. What's going on? How come you're crying? I'm just crying. We've just been fighting this morning. Some personal issues. It was a long day. We were camping yesterday and camping got stuff, flies and stuff. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I hit the, the, the bump there. <laughs> I was distracting him from driving. I'm sorry. Petito's anxiety had apparently been high and she had taken it out on laundry. I don't know, it's just, some days, I, <laughs> I have really bad OCD, and okay. I just, I was just cleaning and straightening up the back of the van before, and I was apologizing to him and saying, I'm sorry that I'm so mean. The cops were distraught about whether or not to charge Petito with assault, but decided against it because of her harmless demeanor. Not once did the cops ask if Laundry or Petito felt safe but they did force them to separate for the night. On August 19th, an eight-minute video titled Van Life was published on YouTube. The video was a charming montage of the couple kissing, traveling, and having fun. Hello, hello, and good morning. It is really nice and sunny today. Set up. Um, I think our plan for today is to just hang out here in the tent. Um, the chocolate so mountain. <laughs> it's a river of chocolate. <laughs> On August 23rd, Petito FaceTimed her mother, with whom she was close, and informed her that she was leaving Utah and driving to Grand Teton National Park in Wyoming. Petito then texted her mother a few times after that phone call, but never directly communicated with her again. On August 25th, Petito posted a new photo onto Instagram. Her signature smile was accompanied by a tiny crocheted pumpkin clasped in between her hands. Many speculate that the last few texts and Instagram posts were not in fact posted by Petito, but her fiance. On August 30th, Petito's mom received a text from her daughter that read, no service in Yosemite. On September 1st, Mr. Laundry returned home to his house in Northport, Florida. He embraced his family and told tales of epic adventures hiking around the world. 
What his family seemed to dismiss is that Petito was not with their son. In fact, she would never return, as she had been strangled to death by laundry. On September 11th, Petito's family reported her as a missing person. By the 15th, Laundrie was categorized as a person of interest. Laundrie refused to speak to the authorities, while National Park Rangers and the FBI were working hard to locate Petito. On the 16th, Petito's father appeared at a press conference, pleading for tips and help to find his daughter. On the 17th, Laundrie's parents alerted the police that they had not seen their son since the 14th. Five days later, remains were found in a national park in Wyoming that seemed to be consistent with Petito's description, and later it was confirmed that they were Petito's. It was also confirmed that Petito's cause of death was homicide, more specifically, strangulation. The exact date of her death was unclear, but approximately a couple weeks had passed since the fatal event. On the 20th, human remains were found in a densely forested area in Florida. Carlton Reserve, along with Laundrie's backpack. On the 21st, it was confirmed via dental records that the human remains were Laundrie's. This case was a tragedy and extremely heartbreaking, but hundreds of these cases happen every year. Why did Petito's case in particular explode on social media? What was the effect of this explosion? Was it ethical? Let's talk about it. Can you introduce your, yourself and who you are at UCDS? Hi, I'm Peter Hines. I'm a high school history teacher, cross-country coach, track coach, and uh, advisor to the newspaper club, and uh, teach a criminal justice class to 11th and 12th graders. So our first question related to our case is, Petito's case was one that went viral on social media quickly, specifically on TikTok as many users were suddenly captivated by the case. Yet, this case is not far from an anomaly. Between 2011 and 2020, 710 indigenous people went missing in the same state that Petito's remains were found. Why did her case in particular get this much attention? Um, I mean, I have some opinions about the, the social climate that would influence that, but um, can you tell me a little bit about the tick-tocking of the Petito case? I mean, I, I read the news coverage, but what was the tick-tocking of it like? Yeah, a lot of the users were, like, suddenly very interested in the case. Mm -hmm. They were so, like, um, I guess, captured by it, and they followed it in a lot of depth. And mm -hmm. many users were trying to find clues and looking at footage and looking at Petito's social media. Mm -hmm. And I think other users were profiting off of the popularity mm -hmm. of it as well. Mm -hmm. So. There was a mix of it, but there was a lot of social media yeah. attention on the case. Well, so I think, I think this speaks to a couple of things. Um, I think one is, I, I, I think the social media landscape um, can't be underestimated um, because I think, I think we have a desire as a society to like really participate in the criminal justice system and in and like since social media like we have a increasing desire to participate in our entertainment right and so i think like the ability to go through a real person's social media i'm guessing like i'm guessing from your thing that her profile is public and whatever and so you can i'm guessing they screenshotted it and whatever and 
um, put that out. And I'm sure that feels like very engaging to be like a, you know, to be a detective and all that. Um, so I think that's one part. Um, I think the other part is we have a fascination in the world, in our sort of American criminal justice world uh, with the bizarre and the gruesome and the abnormal. Um, and we want to climb into the psyche of deviance. Um, and I think there's a narrative in our country that when a pretty young white woman goes missing, that this is abnormal. And so there's something going on that deserves investigating where when someone of a different race, such as these indigenous people that you've mentioned, goes missing. Um, one thing is not a whole lot of national media coverage of indigenous people, right? So, like, how would you find that out? I think seeing something so abnormal, something so, you know, wrong, right, for a, you know, seemingly normal person to go to go missing uh, causes people sort of alarm bells to go off and to want to help out by... TikTok solving it. Mm -hmm. I think it's also interesting because this does connect to the book because this was a book written about like a very all-American middle-class white mm. family. Mm. Um, so I think maybe that is one of the reasons the book was written or was so mm. popular because people were, were like, what could possibly mm. happen to yeah. this family yeah. that's so classical and yeah. seemingly nice? How'd they die? Um, they were murdered by these people who found, well, this one guy who found out in jail that they were really rich, mm. so they went there mm. randomly, mm. Oh, yeah. um, okay. and they just murdered them because they mm. wanted to get money from them, but mm. they didn't have it, and mm. so then they just killed them. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that, that fear of being trapped in your home with a home invader right of a yeah. ran, random crime right like this is and so i mean the other thing that i think is worth bringing up is in all of this um this fear right this like personification of our like societal fear right and our treatment of crime as this random occurrence that could happen could spark at any moment come out of nowhere right? and you know you could be sitting in your home living a nice normal middle class lifestyle and somebody could burst into your house, I'm guessing held them hostage for a little bit. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing, you know, demanded their belongings and then got frustrated and then their lives were over, right? Ooh, scary, right? That, you know, <laughs> things could pop out of nowhere and end, and end everything for you, right? Um, walking down the street, who is that person? What do they want from me? Right? Like, you know, that fear. Is my boyfriend secretly a murderer, right? These, like, you know, fears that uh, get cropped up on in our, uh, in our entertainment are, um, they come from somewhere. We create this entertainment because we have these ideas. That makes a lot of sense. Are there any possible harms of this case receiving too much media attention? And are there any benefits? I believe that transparency is essential in our criminal justice system. I believe like the whole system really benefits when there is a high degree of transparency. Um, I have not seen 
citizen detectives participation um, be overall beneficial um, I think there's some merit for some people like there are some individuals who have received good outcomes because of it um, but I think that most of us don't have the tools uh, to do a proper investigation um, don't have sufficient respect for people's civil and procedural rights um, and I think that if we um, begin sort of empowering like vigilante detectives we get closer to uh, empowering vigilante people um, and that's not a direction I want to go um, and I think it um, further delegitimizes the criminal justice system to have um, people who don't have the full information thinking that they do. Having a large community of people believing that they know better than um, the people whose job it is to work on it um, is, I think, in some ways beneficial on a systematic level and at a voter's level, um, but as a, at a specifics of the case level, I, I don't see it being helpful. Um, uh, because it delegitimizes the system. Um, in terms of other harms, um, I know that we as a society have a big fear of the unknown, right? And of random crime. And, you know, the statistics don't bear out the idea that crime happens that way. And so I think that the more that we uh, publicize high-profile gruesome cases, um, the more that we as a society retreat from public space and from public life and um, end up like causing further damage. And so um, I think that the like sort of famous nature of these big cases causes people to believe that random crime happens all the time and they need to be afraid and they need to withdraw and they need to be suspicious and they need to increase the police enforcement presence, which is not preventative, it's responsive, but, um, yeah. What do you think of this statistic that the majority of, I guess, listeners to true crime are white women, even though a lot of it preys on their fears? Like, why, you've touched on this a little bit, but why would they be so attracted to this? I guess the first thing that I would have to do is say, like, is this true? Like, I, I haven't heard that. Like, can you tell me a little more about the statistic? Many sources have cited that women are make up the majority of the audience of true crime, but they've also said that true crime is generally targeted towards white women specifically. Uh, okay. Um, if that's true, then... Um... I guess I get into the dodgy territory of commenting on an identity that's not my own. Um, you know, I think it's uh, important for me to point out, right? Like, I, um, this is not an identity that I hold, and so I can't, um, it's all going to be speculation, not, not for my own. I'm trying to be historically based in my answers, but um, take all this with a, with a grain of salt. Um, you know, so to go through this sort of intersectionally, I think... Um, you know, to deal with the femininity. Um, if true crime is about the taboo and it's about the deviant and it's about the violent, um, and suddenly you have women and white women accessing it, you know, why do people want 
these things. They want, I guess, something that has been denied to them, right? I, you know, I, access to murder, why would, like, you know, I think um, men have plenty of access to, to murder and violence in their media. Um, I think true crime um, perhaps relates to some of the psychology, like the psychology of deviance. And so where, where would someone could pick up that interest, you know, if you look to sort of the Victorian era, right, the, and the class angle of this, it was really desirable um, for women to be able to um, be wealthy enough or have husbands who are wealthy enough uh, that they didn't have to work outside of the home and that they could work in the home, managing the home, um, and, that, um, and that therefore, like, having very light skin because you spent so little time outside of the house became really desirable, right? Um, and so it was desirable for women to be very reserved. Um, and so therefore being out was really sort of taboo and, um, and dangerous. It was described as dangerous for women, right? Women could get in trouble because they would go out into the world of men and men, you know, like are dangerous and unpredictable and scary and, you know, train for different things and so women should you know stay in a sphere that's that's better for them um and so you know whoa figuring out the psychology of that is um certainly a fascinating question if any of that lingers into today you know i think that that would be something that people would be drawn to examine i guess um, um and then you know you look at sort of the waves of this right you get to like the flappers and stuff like that they're sort of um you know, out in society really um, sort of pushing for freedom, pushing for access to the public space. Um, but then they're, you know, sort of pushed back and there's this like, you know, sort of uh, counter narrative that they shouldn't be, um, shouldn't be doing that, that that's not women's roles. Um, then by the 50s, you, you get sort of this cult of domesticity. Again, it's sort of really desirable to be a housewife and to have a single income family. Um, um, and so I, I guess that's societal conditioning, right, to, um, to sort of stay in, but then also um, be afraid of what's out there, I, I, I guess would be the, the main part of the femininity that I could think of. Um, but then you begin to consider like white womanhood that's a sort of different story that would have a different set of historical precedents yeah also like in my own research of like um something related to this of like victimization of white women i've mm -hmm. noticed in my research of like how different races are targeted in criminal justice i've seen that like there are some policies that have like targeted interracial couples and seeing that go out and seeing because the government policies kind of interpreted interracial couples as like a threat to the white woman and seeing like how that was worded and how that was enforced it only like adds to that narrative of like them white women being a victim constantly and it enforces a feeling of like I need to be safe and they just feel this pressure more and but that's like the only narrative seen so. well and that's and right like that's harmful to white women too right like to yeah. to treat white women as though they are like potential victims as yeah. opposed to like people with agency who can defend their own selves right mm -hmm. um is is harmful to white women too um i 
but the ways that these laws are created and enforced um, does not primarily harm white women. In fact, has been designed to empower white women. This reminds me of uh, something that happened in the Petito case. Like, interestingly, I think a couple days or maybe a week before she was reported as missing, um, they were stopped by the police because they were just behind them and they ran into a curb. And a lot of people were, like, looking at the video camera of this and basically they were going to charge her with assault because when they pulled her over she was talking about how her like anxiety was really high and he actually swerved because she hit him um but when the cops were making the decision they decided not to because they said something about like her she's not a threat to him her demeanor is not threatful like she's whatever x pounds like something like that like they didn't perceive her as a threat which kind of ties into what you guys were thinking about it's interesting that narrative and they never asked him if he felt safe they never asked her if she felt safe so that was an interesting thing that the media definitely took along and wrote a lot about yeah i mean uh, that sort of stuff like that sort of um monday morning quarterbacking you know second guessing of decisions that were made by someone else based on based on incomplete information and you know the it's all incomplete information but the most complete information resides within that police officer within the with the training at that moment um then they file the report and whatever other documentation and then you know some of that stuff is public right um but not all of it is. And so um, I, I'm not really comfortable with that sort of Monday morning quarterbacking because, because I think it engages in the same sort of like worthy, unworthy social uh, sort of labeling that I'm not comfortable with, right? Like I... Um, Women can be abusive, yes. Um, size does not play a role in abuse, right? Um, yes. But um, the idea that we would, the idea that we would choose as a society to second guess that decision and saying, you know what, that should have been treated more harshly. Being more harsh um, demanding retribution, demanding that like each infraction be uh, in, like punished to the desire of the social media community, um, while pointed at Gabby Petito, um, I think blows back on these uh, five hundred Indigenous people that you just mentioned, um, and so I I try and stay away from that sort of stuff. I think it also falls back to like stereotypes and the way that people perceive things and you know how the police just walk up to the situation and assume that it, it wasn't anything major and it's so much of these kind of situations depend on how police or anyone involved in the situation perceive people and like it really falls back on stereotypes and what's been encouraged by society all these years yeah and i and i feel like i've been talking about training i i fully agree with what you're talking about and um 
I feel like I've been talking about training a lot, um, as though it's some like gold standard. Training is imperfect too, right? Um, highly imperfect, <laughs> um, and should be improved. Um, but, um, but we don't have it either. Right. Um, and we don't have that. Um, but I think, I think the other thing that you're seeing here, right. Is like, you have someone who I, I from what you're, I'm only really going off of what Ellery's told me, but like someone hits a curb, a police officer happens to be behind them. And suddenly now they stop them and begin investigating the other elements of their life, right? Um, and um, searching for other crimes, right? Um, okay. In, in, to the extent that this may have been a domestic abuse situation, whoa, okay, like, um, let's intervene in that. Let's prevent harm. Um, is the officer who pulled over this person for hitting the curb, the police officer, the best person to respond to a domestic violence incident? I'm going to go ahead and say that, that, that their training, uh, from what I've seen is mostly incomplete on that. Right. Um, um, and really what they're trained to do is to like intervene into criminality, right? Is this domestic violence? Is this assault or is it not? Um, and the preference is usually to um, give couples their sort of freedom, um, give partners their freedom, um, and to respect what is said. What is said is conditioned by stereotype. What is said is conditioned by fear of retribution. Um, and so, uh, domestic violence counselors have training in understanding what is unsaid um, is important. <laughs> um, police officers tend to focus on what is said, what they have evidence for, right? So that's a difference in training, right? Um, and who is responding. That's why I'm uncomfortable with us sitting back and saying, Gabby Petito hit a curb and, you know, then there was this crime that nobody addressed. And so everybody who hits curbs, go, go find out what really is going on there. Right. Um, because the way that policing is deployed, uh, historically in this country and currently in this country is in black and brown communities, um, where the threat of violence against them exists because of these stereotypes about who needs to be reserved, who needs to be preserved and who is a threat. So, yeah, I agree on the role of stereotypes. Um, that makes me wonder, I feel like the public, especially considering, like, TikTok's focus on this case, like, how much influence does the public have on both the media, but also, like, the criminal justice system and the law enforcement's involvement in the case or similar cases? Um, I think a lot. Um, I think they have a lot. Uh, some is good, some is bad. Um, uh, to give you one example of, um, of our influence on the media, kids love Law & Order SVU, Special Victims Unit. I'm old enough to remember a time when we had two Law & Orders. Or really, actually, I remember the time where we had just one. Um, and, it was, and there were murders every week, right? Somebody got murdered. And some of them were fantastical and gruesome. 
and some were pretty run of the mill and, you know, uncertain. And then there came a time when we as a society were no longer um, watching enough Law and Order, the regular version. And so we created, like we, I, and I really mean we as a society, we created Law and Order SVU. Because what we wanted to watch was something where the crimes were really, especially heinous or something like that. Um, and related to sex crimes, right? Um, and so this is like, oh my gosh, sex and violence coming together. This is truly evil, right? Like this. And people were dying to watch it. And the, the vine of SVU choked out the law and order vine. People were no longer interested in watching regular law and order. They would only really watch. And I, I talked to kids about it. Like, don't you watch regular law and order? No, it's boring. What do you mean it's boring? It's the same stuff. It's a trial. It's an investigation. It's a trial. It's police. No, but you know, it's boring. What do you No, I don't know. What do you mean? It's, well, you know, because the, the cases are different. What do you mean the cases are different? Right? And I, I don't want to go in, like, but what they mean is, I want to see the nastiest meanest crime, the most, like, audacious, the most, like, uh, the most forbidden. I want to see the most forbidden thing. That taboo feels really good to get contact with it, right? Um, we as a society, with our um, sort of fear of the forbidden, fear of the random, right? Um, and our desire to imagine that because we do imagine it right to see it imagined out there um we we watch that like crazy to the point that the other the other shows are dead um and so yes i believe that we influence the media that is created because um media sort of in independent journalism solely for the engagement of the facts uh no longer that got choked out by other things in the uh, sort of more targeted to consumer media marketplace. Um, so yes, I see, I see that influence. Um, but yeah, no, people also have a positive influence. A hundred percent, a hundred thousand percent. Um, people have a positive influence on the criminal justice system because, um, we have fewer people incarcerated without a trial now than we did. 10 years ago. Um, this year, we have fewer people incarcerated. So speaking to New York City, there are fewer people incarcerated this year than there were last year by huge percentages because we were concerned that you had people sitting in Rikers Island uh, jail um, enduring the abuse that is endemic to that place um, and also at risk of essentially a death sentence with COVID. Um, and, um, people held lawmakers accountable to do something about that, right? There's a, there's another time in our world where pandemic comes, problem arises in Rikers and nobody's attentive to it. And so the lawmakers prioritize other problems. Um, I think, I think the American people have held... Uh, and the people of New York City have held um, 
their lawmakers accountable for change uh, in that instance. Um, yeah, so I, I definitely see, um, and like I hope that students at this school feel empowered to like like know that your opinions deeply influence the criminal justice system, whether you think about them or not, they are influencing the criminal justice system. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the idea or notion of knowing the power, the power, I guess, of one's individual action or the power of uh, society and the influence on media and how effective that can be is important. And this leads to our last question, which is what should the GCS community keep in mind when consuming true crime in order to benefit the effects it has on the criminal justice system and also on um, true crime in general in society? Oh, boy. <laughs> be careful. Uh, be Like, genuinely be careful. And I, I, that may sound extreme, um, but I genuinely mean that because it it takes us down this road of, like desire for vengeance that I think is unhealthy. I think it creates a narrative about public life that is harmful, um, right? And so you watch true crime and you worry about someone popping out of the dark, you're probably gonna have a harder time driving down a dark street to go have a delicious meal and have a nice night in a community that would be happy to have your dollars and be, be empowered, right? And so, um, yeah, when you watch that stuff, it conditions you to have like an attitude towards public space that is by nature out of touch with the reality of probability, right? True crime doesn't work based on probability and likelihood. It works based on like um, big impact, right? Something big and scary, right? You have a gruesome murder and some place becomes a dangerous town. You have one every hundred years. It's not a dangerous town. It's a, it's a really horrific, bad thing that happened, and it's a tragedy, and we should be sad about the harm that happened, and we should try and undo the harm, remedy the harm as best as we can. But that's one thing that happened. That doesn't mean that that place is dangerous and that we should act differently as a result. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to help have this discussion. It was, it was a pleasure. Awesome. It was a pleasure. This is uh, this is stuff that really matters. Yep. The disappearance of Gabby Petito has raised the most gruesome parts of humanity. Petito and Brian Laundry began their travels as a couple that was head over heels for each other. As they traversed the states and discovered the sheer wonders of exploration, no one imagined that their journey would end as a tragedy. The public was suddenly engrossed by this case, with many users on TikTok especially who desperately sought answers to the terror of the situation. National news outlets found Petito's story necessary to cover after it sparked attention across the country. However, so many more cases similar to hers occur without gaining the same viral media coverage. Why did hers capture the public eye while others never did? The only cases that ever receive a similar amount of attention as Petito's are disappearances that also involve white women. Missing white woman syndrome is a term that refers to the phenomenon where the media pays excessive attention to white women who go missing, as women of color do not ever receive coverage of the same magnitude. Our society is so consciously fixated on our expectations of physical beauty, and stories that do not include characters who align with this interest easily slip off the radar. To our society, 
There is something uniquely terrifying about the innocence of a white woman being stripped away by the horrors of disappearance. There are women of color who experience disappearance as well, yet our society is not interested enough to listen. We as the general public have a significant influence on whose voices are amplified and what occurs within the criminal justice system as a result. We have the power to shift attention and push for change. Sometimes our fixation on certain cases can help us recognize issues and fight for them to be resolved, encouraging people to vote and advocate for the rectification of problems that might have been previously hidden. Other times, we can be so caught up in a case that we think of ourselves as higher and more knowledgeable than law enforcement themselves, who hold extensive details concerning a case that may never even come to light. So when does our interest begin to cross boundaries? There is always a part of us that is lured into the darkest parts of humanity, as the bizarre intersections between what seems impossible and what becomes reality are what draws us in. We are so intrigued by the most inhumane crime stories, which drives the industry of true crime. We seek the most shocking situations, asking ourselves, how could someone do this as we analyze the unfathomable? White women make up the largest portion of those who consume true crime media while also being the ones who are most often depicted as the victims in these stories, speaking to the addicting thrill of fear we find in true crime. Over time, the media has shifted its attention to the worst of the worst as it draws in larger audiences. Our discussion with Mr. Hines has raised many new questions about the ethics behind this collective interest. Is it ethical that we are so invested in true crime? Is it okay for us to be so drawn to these stories that are so personal to the families involved? Petito now has over 1 million followers on Instagram after many were stunned that the charming lifestyle on her page had taken a fatal turn. Can this level of interest be invasive? We are strangely enthralled by true crime, discovering a gripping fright and following the crime to its end. True crime and horror movies both grant us the thrill of an eerily unimaginable situation but the difference between the two lies in reality and fiction. The pure realness of true crime deepens its effect on us as we consume the story and can't help but consider, who might this happen to next? True crime pushes us to build an expectation that gruesome situations like that of Petito's happen much more often than they actually do. It is psychologically unhealthy for us to be so concerned with a near impossible situation, and it is crucial for us to remember the rarity of these malicious crimes. In context of In Cold Blood by Truman Capote, one brutal murder within 20 years does not make Holcomb, Kansas a town more vulnerable to danger. The whole town was so possessed by the murder of the Clutter family that the atmosphere of the previously perfectly peaceful town shifted to a state of extreme unease and distrust. The people of Holcomb became especially wary of each other while searching for answers to what happened on that night. The stories illustrated in the industry of true crime are ones that so scarcely occur, and it is not worth our energy to be frightened by the possibility of being a victim. We must be careful with the message that we draw from true crime. If we are not cautious, we might trap ourselves in a cycle that is almost as bad as the crime itself.